Hello everyone and good morning. Thank you so much for joining us at Today Radio, whether it be on the radio, on Apple or Spotify podcasts. Of course, you can subscribe and listen to all of the back catalogue there for myself and many of my colleagues as well. And you can watch us on RTL Play. Now, today with my guests, I've got four guests in the studio here at RTL in Kirschberg, Luxembourg. We're going to talk about the very, very difficult and poignant situation in Palestine, Israel. Uh, we have representatives from across the board and we also have with us Emanuele Sante, who you'll know for various uh, roles in Luxembourg. But he's here in his capacity as an author of Fear No More. Uh, and you'll talk about your time living in the north of Africa, Tunisia specifically. Uh, and you were there as a witness of the Arab Spring. So welcome to all of my guests. Hello. Hello, thank you. Now, just to introduce my guests, Thomas Kaufmann, you're the director of MSF, uh, that's Médecins Sans Frontières and Doctors Without Borders, Luxembourg. Sari Sisalem, you're a Luxembourg resident, originally from Palestine. Nathalie Oberweis, you're from the Comité pour un pays juste au Proche-Orient. So if you want to translate that, that's a committee for uh, peace, really, in just the Middle peace. East. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have, of course, Manuel Asante, who, who wears many hats, but you're here in your capacity, of course, as, a, as an African, North African uh, witness, uh, resident, and uh, you were working there, of course, during the Arab Spring. So I want to start with you, Thomas, uh, your role as director of MSF Luxembourg. Um, Before we begin, let me just uh, play out some testimonies for our listeners, which you sent to us uh, from December, from the Gaza Strip. Yes. I'm at the Nassau Hospital in Khan Yunis. It's a city in the south of the Gaza Strip that's been the focus of Israeli ground operations for the last few weeks. Outside the hospital, you can hear the bombs and the shells landing not too far away. And inside the hospital, the results. And when you look at the register of patients in the hospital, what you see is a solid block, one single cause, of injury, explosive injury. We've got two OTs that we're working in here, and one at the moment, a 12-year-old girl with a gaping wound on her right hip. She's crying, she's distressed. And in the next OT, a guy, perhaps 25, his left leg amputated, his other leg fractured with a metal external fixator drilled into the bones, keep it in place. One thing I want to talk about is the dedication of the Palestinian colleagues. Most of them, they came here on October 7th and they haven't left. And the scenes that they described, especially in the first month of the war, just absolutely apocalyptic. Bodies torn into hundreds of pieces, burned by the force of the explosions. It's really horrible. There's one story that stuck with me. A woman we're operating on had fourth degree burns all down the front of her body. That means that she was burned right down to the fat. All the skin had gone off. And she was burned so badly because one of her children caught fire after an explosion through a bombing and in order to try and pat out the flames on a child's body, she hugged the child to her and in the process was so badly burned herself. So there we have one testimony and of course um, every single story is poignant but the one that of course affected him so deeply and any listener I'm sure as well as the mother who has fourth degree burns that means burns right down to the fat of her body because she was trying to protect her daughter. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to one more testimony that you have sent us from the workers for MSF in the Gaza Strip. 
I'm at the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis. It's a city in the south of the Gaza Strip that's been the focus of Israeli ground operations for the last few weeks. Outside the hospital, you can hear the bombs and the shells landing not too far away. And inside the hospital, the results. And when you look at the register of patients in the hospital, what you see is a solid block, one single cause of injury, explosive injury. We've got two OTs that we're working in here. In one at the moment, a 12-year-old girl with a gaping wound on her right hip. She's crying, she's distressed. And in the next OT, a guy, perhaps 25, his left leg amputated, his other leg fractured with a metal external fixator drilled into the bones, keep it in place. One thing I want to talk about is the dedication of the Palestinian colleagues. Most of them, they came here on October 7th and they haven't left. And the scenes that they described, especially in the first month of the war, just absolutely apocalyptic. Bodies torn into hundreds of pieces, burned by the force of the explosions. It's really horrible. There's one story that stuck with me. A woman we're operating on had fourth degree burns all down the front of her body. That means that she was burned right down to the fat, all the skin had gone off. And that's the story that we heard about her daughter. She was trying to protect her daughter and uh, and suffered those fourth degree burns. Thank you for sending us those testimonies. Thank you for all of the workers that you have on the ground there. You have been watching this day in, day out, night after night. Of course, it doesn't end when the, the lights go down. Give us a reflection of what you've been doing with MSF. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you know, MSF, we are a humanitarian medical uh, organization. We are working in the Gaza Strip since 1988. And uh, what is so touching about this testimony is, is that it gives us a glimpse from what happened inside right now in the Gaza Strip. Um, and I would like to take one word from my colleague uh, Jacob that we heard, Jacob Burns. He is a project coordinator there. And he's saying uh, it's apocalyptic. And that's the word. And from the, um, from the, the testimony that we just heard, which is actually unbearable, um, we get to understand that the situation there is apocalyptic. People are severely burned. Uh, there are a lot of amputations, uh, horrible things in, an, in a war environment, which is indiscriminately shelled. Uh, so as Jacob said, you can hear while being in the hospital that, uh, you know, bombs are exploding everywhere. Uh, there is this sense of, of panic. Uh, everybody thinks that uh, the hospital is a safe place, which is not anymore, um, because they are also um, bombarded, shelled, the hospitals. And this is also what we, as a medical humanitarian organization, are calling for the respect of the health institutions and from the medical staff. Because what we know also is that most of the patients there in the hospitals are women and children. Yeah, actually we have some horrible statistics here, some data, and of course it's changing day on day. And we must also say to our listeners, we're recording this on Monday, despite it going out on Saturday. And even in those few days, other things could change. At the moment we have uh, towards 24,000 people who have died. 70% of those are women and children. And more than, well, it's almost 60,000 people have been injured since the 7th of October until the 11th of January. 
So there are just a few statistics. I've got many, many more. But again, I can emphasize, underline that word ap- apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Um, this scale of devastation, of killing, is, is unseen. Uh, my colleague Jacob I was talking about before and other colleagues from MSF uh, working since 30 years on the ground in different operations, on war, on cat- natural catastrophes, they say they have never seen that before. So this is why uh, thank you for inviting us today and that, that's my message from, from MSF. We are calling from, for a ceasefire. Um, we are calling from the, the relief of the blockers and we are calling for the respect of this, as I said, the health institutions, the medical staff, so that, uh, you know, doctors can work uh, with the nice condition. Right now in the hospitals, we are working uh, into, there are no more uh, commodities, we are lacking Uh, drugs, we are lacking everything. Well, even infrastructure, because again, yes. according to local health authorities, there's more than 7,000 people who are under rubble. We have more than 1.9 million people in Gaza, that's almost 85% of the population, forcibly displaced. And most of us, I'm pretty sure all of our listeners and viewers, will have seen photos, video footage of what's happened. How are you even managing to function in a hospital when the utilities probably aren't working? Dedication. And Jacob is saying also, uh, we have many uh, colleagues, uh, Palestinian colleagues working there. We have a team of international doctors also entering in the Gaza Strip and they do some rotation. Um, there are doctors and around doctors, nurses, medical staff, but also, you know, um, humanitarian staff and, and it's the dedication they they want to stay there uh, in order to do their work which is saving lives of course we heard that the conditions are not respected to really save lives there and this is why uh, there is a it's urgent to to to, to have a ceasefire um, but still they stay there uh, even lacking uh, most of what they need they are staying there because they say we, we need to, to save lives. And in another testimony, Jacob is interviewing uh, Palestinian colleagues who says, uh, actually, I had to choose between saving my own families and uh, pursuing my work here in the hospital, and I choose to stay in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing. What we see is, mm-hmm. is amazing in terms of dedication, uh, in terms of humanity staying there. Um, but if you allow me to... to To take a little bit of distance, I would say right now uh, the international community is not actually crying out on the respect of these uh, uh, health infrastructures. You know, normally, and we had this before in other wars, like when hospitals are bombed, uh, there was a huge scandal. Everybody was saying, how is that possible that you, that you bombard a, a hospital? You know, Right now it's here, it's the new normal. And that's very, for us, very serious in terms of consequences for the future, because the humanitarian um, space is, is, is shrinking because of that for the future. So it's not only what we see here, is, which is apocalyptic, but it's also a big danger for the future. Why is the international community not speaking up more? I think this is beyond now my, my own uh, analysis, but... Um, uh, I don't know. I think we need more uh, as MSF. We, we really want to speak out and testimony. And that's what we are doing now through also this, uh, this testimony. And thanks for that. Why is it not uh, you know, more uh, listened? I think it's maybe because 
people like you and me, the, the general audience, maybe they don't measure right now the, 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 the scale of devastation there. That could be an answer. Well, I think we've seen enough evidence and I know that Natalie you are working with people you've worked uh, with Israel Palestine and that whole region for more than 14 years so mm -hmm. tell us about your experiences um, yes as an NGO we have projects in occupied Palestine we go there regularly and we do which is very important that has been my job for many years we do uh, awareness raising work in Luxembourg so we go into schools and we organize uh, public events to speak about Palestine about uh, uh, human rights problems in Palestine and so on um, What I wanted to add to the international community, not standing up to their obligations, because there are clear obligations uh, coming out of international law, what our states uh, should be doing, should be calling uh, for and should be applying. They should be applying international law. And uh, for, to take the example of the hospitals, the Israeli narrative, because, you know, in war there is always propaganda from every side, which is totally normal. I mean, uh, war propaganda is something very normal in war times. And the Israeli narrative of bombarding the hospitals, and we know very well that two thirds of the hospitals in Gaza are not functioning anymore, more or less. I mean, I have heard different numbers because they have been tar targeted. So the Israeli na narrative is to say that uh, Hamas fighters have been Uh, hiding in these infrastructures. Now, I listened to a um, Belgian uh, jurist, lawmaker, uh, international law specialist, and she was saying as long as the civil infrastructure is being used, so for example, a hospital or a school or a church, as long as it's being used as a civil infrastructure, like the people are there to be, um, like there were hundreds and thousands of people in these hospitals, as long as they're used Uh, as civil infrastructure, they are protected under international law. They should not be targeted. It's very clear. The international law is very clear on this. So they should not be targeted. And is Israel has been above the international law, outside the framework of international law, not respecting these norms. Everybody knows these norms. You should not be targeting churches, uh, mosques, schools, uh, hospitals. And we see large-scale targeting of these infrastructures. Also, and just I will end with this, you, um, Thomas, was speaking about the medical staff, which is also being targeted very clearly. We can see there is a targeting of these frontline uh, activists on, you know, medical staff. Journalists are another category in Gaza being clearly targeted uh, as journalists, not as, uh, how do you say, um, um, secondary, um, like... Uh, They are not uh, dommage collateral, how do you say that? Collateral damage. Uh, yes, thank you. They are not collateral damage, but they are being targeted very clearly. Like they are targeting the ambulances, but they are also targeting the press uh, journalists. And then we have more than 100 journalists dead in uh, in more than, like, I think it's 115 or more journalists died. So there are clear targeted, and this is totally contrary to every norm of international law. But uh, unfortunately, Israel has been, and this is not new, Israel has been outside of the respect of international law framework for many uh, dozens of years. Well, I know there's many, many underlying reasons why that might be the case. Uh, I'm sure, Manuela, you have a view on this. Uh, and I bring you in here now, not really because you're associated with Israel-Palestine, but you've lived in Africa for many years. You have deep affiliation with Africa. And of course, South Africa have been in the news over the recent weeks because they are calling out Israel for genocide. Yeah, I think I think there is a, there's a clear... 
you, you were asking the questions, why are not the international community standing out? Uh, the history of South Africa speaks on its, um, and actually make the country a natural uh, ally of Palestine. They lived apartheid on their skin. They also have a, you know, Israel had, had uh, supported the apartheid regime. The United States has supported the apartheid regime of South Africa before, um, before the, actually the change of regime. Uh, so they feel very strongly uh, and Nelson Mandela himself oftentimes reiterated that their, their um, world will not be free without Palestinians being free. And I think that that natural um, instinct made that country particularly sensitive. And many other countries, we, we saw Namibia this weekend actually standing out and, and calling out on Germany uh, for supporting um, Israel so openly. Um, and so Namibia was witnessing the first case of genocide uh, perpetrated by Germany during the yeah. colonial um, age. And so I think in the global south, there is quite a lot of kind of compassion and, and, and towards, and there's a lot of parallel uh, for uh, those countries have been colonized. They're now uh, speaking out. Yeah, and, and all of that is, of course, very understandable. You said the natural instinct. Of course, um, we don't have an Israeli uh, representative here at the moment, but this conversation is really about peace and about humanitarian uh, movement. Uh, it's not having one side or another. It's just about uh, international communities coming together and what everybody wants, which is a peaceful resolution to this. Israelis also have the natural instinct, and we all know where that comes from as well. And it really is a call out to anybody who would like to come and talk about this because it's it's such a passionate subject and there are so many different sides. And of course, the problem with war is that it sits in your epigenetics and it passes down the generations. So the natural instinct becomes even stronger. And I just before I move to you, Sari, I just want to come back to you, uh, Thomas, because um, we've been talking about the first wave. We heard the testimonies on the ground of the catastrophic situations, doctors, all medical staff, the organisational staff, there's, there's so many layers around a hospital, of course, not least the fact that uh, it's a place of refuge for some people because there's nowhere else to stay. It's, it's rubble. The ground is rubble. But there's a second wave of infections, of, of lack of cleanliness, no hygiene, water. Can you tell us about what MSF fears for what's coming second and third wave? Absolutely. Um, first, you have the long-term diseases. Um, you know, take diabetes, cholesterol, you know, all these diseases which needs uh, drugs and, 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 and care. Uh, these are totally, right now, not treated. Because the emergency in the hospital, which uh, I, I remain uh, as uh, are lacking everything, the priority is there is just to save life of these people coming with severe burns and, 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 and amputated uh, uh, limbs, uh, limbs, and, and, and so forth. So these people with uh, with um, chronic disease, uh, long term conditions, they are not treated. So of course they are at risk. Then of course there is a lack, as you said, of antibiotics. So you can actually, and that's what the doctors right now say. They say we can, we can, you know, operate so doing some surgeries, but we don't have the medicine for uh, the second uh, care. You know, the the rehabilitation of of the patients. So that's again another problems. On top of this, as you said, all basic commodities like even water and 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 basic food uh, are lacking as well uh, 
creating another wave of yes disease so it's it's um again it's i think it's apocalyptic because uh you know you have this uh, uh conditions which are uh going on one on the top of the others and at the end it's just all this population which is at risk of uh of being uh, uh with a lot of death and uh, of destruction actually Yeah, and and it's not just primary death as a as a yes. result of the impact of war. Absolutely, but of course those waves that come after war for all sorts of reasons we've just discussed. Sari, I want to bring you in here now. You are a Luxembourg resident from Palestine. Uh, you work in international development, in fact, uh, and you work on peace projects, uh, building between Palestine, Israel, uh, amongst others, also with a focus on climate. Can you give us some testimony of? of what it's like from your perspective. Well, <clears throat> thank you so much, Lisa. First of all, allow me to thank you and thank all the colleagues, Thomas, Emmanuel and Natalie for being here. And I think it's super important that what you said, that we are, we are able to talk and discuss and communicate with each other, even with the different backgrounds and the different perspectives and different opinions on the topic. But I think uh, it's healthy and it's needed, at least in terms of respect to the people who, and the victims and the people who have been killed and suffering, that at least we are able to, to talk, understand, in order to see how we can help. That's uh, first of all. Second of all, allow me to just say, uh, it is very sad, I mean, what's gone on for the population in Gaza and the people there, and my family was there, my friends, uh, I lived all my life there uh, almost. Uh, it is sad, it is shocking, and everybody there is like in a status of cannot believe what's going on. It's like really living the most horror movies. I don't think it will be in that way. Just to let you know how, how we saw it or how the people in Gaza see what's going on. They see what's happening, like bombing schools, bombing universities, uh, bombing uh, uh, bakeries, uh, clinics, um, streets have been destroyed, uh, trees have been cut. Uh, this, of course, on top of the 23,000 people or lives have been killed, plus the injuries, 7,000, 12,000 of the people who are dead are estimated to be children. Uh, I mean, plus the fear. I mean, what, what, the, what people are, of course, first of all, the communication was very difficult, but every time I will try to speak with my family, my friends, like all over the day. 24 hours try to reach out and when you hear when you see the testimonies and people going the horror the fear how they were running even when they go to safe zones and they get attacked there uh, this actually raised a lot of questions first question that people in Gaza are saying why is this happening to us um, second question was where is the world where is the international community what are the people are talking about human rights animal rights lgbt rights climate action justice all this was correctly and justified of course to speak about it but like how we cannot implement this on palestinians and this also comes to the question that they were asking thomas why and to emmanuel and natalie why the international community is not really acting i think the palestinians have the perspective especially people in gaza particularly that the whole universe or at least the official governments and institutions does not see them as equal human people they don't see them as necessarily i don't think that i think there's a fear yes that's what i'm saying how they're feeling israel. and i think that's actually the the and and we understand why yes. historically that's the case yes. but th that's how the people feel they feel like uh, they don't care about us and another perspective even from the israeli uh, perspective or is how palestinians in gaza look to the israel army say look they have all the technology why they are doing this mass slaughter i mean 
it could have been different way if it's really about uh, politics or really conflict. Can I just interrupt you and ask, I mean, actually, you underlined something that's incredibly important. Again, just to talk about the layers mm-hmm. around war communication from your side, living here, trying to get in touch with your family and friends. Uh, I, I have other Palestinian friends here as well. It's very difficult. It's the same for you with MSF and for the workers there reaching their families. I know that we spoke to a physiotherapist from Lunex University who has many friends with MSF and uh, that communication is cut off so often and it makes work and trying to figure out what's going on in the ground incredibly difficult. But I want to actually go back to what it was like there to live there before October 7th. Yes. So... That's a very good point. And I think before that, there are beautiful lines in life in Gaza, as well as the sad ones. Uh, the reality is that Palestinians, and as I said, particularly people of Gaza, they love to live. They love life. We have one of the highest educational percentages in the Middle East, at least in the region. Uh, it, around 85% of the population is highly educated, and a higher percentage of that, of the 85, are actually female so more than male educators. Uh, if you look to Gaza, you will see a lot of cafes, restaurants all over the beach side. All those have been destroyed now. You will see a lot of my friends that I know, many people, young people, try to be entrepreneurs, try to build their own business, try to dig despite the difficulty. And yes, there is official blockade on Gaza since 17 years. But the reality is, on top of that, is that there is um, a particular division and on-purpose policy of segregating Gaza from the rest of the universe, and especially from West Bank and even from Israel, in order to make people more isolated, in order to have more fear, in order to have more uh, worries about the future, that you cannot reach your dreams and hopes there. Yet people trying their best to achieve that, but you are talking about 60 to 70%, at least 60% of unemployment rates. We have a lot of people who are highly educated with a master's degree or a PhD will go work as a taxi driver, of course, with all respect to all professions. But I mean, they go search for any any way of living. There were people who are having good business, good money. But as I said, um, the overall image, there are some beauty of it. There is a hope to go do something better, have a better life. But you are against many, if not all the odds to have really a normal life, to have a normal freedom of access, uh, to go travel and come whenever you want, to go purchase your degrees outside. Some people could go on there, here, travel, etc. But this is like, uh, I don't know how much of the percentage of population. There are people who was born and dead were born in Gaza and dead now, and they've never left Gaza to go somewhere else. And what was the relationship before 7th of October with Israelis? That's a very good question. I think the relation with the Israelis went through different ups and downs. Um, As I said, I personally believe um, that the segregation of Gaza from the Israeli community, I'm not talking about politicians at the moment, or even the segregation from West Bank, has been going for a long period, even before the elections of 2006. And the target of that to, when you have communication, you have less problems. So I think it was purposely done to decommunicate or at least to break the communication line between Palestinian and Israeli societies. So people don't see each other as equal human, as like, oh, you want to have a coffee? Oh, you go to the gym. Oh, you work on this. You work on that. So th- that's, I think, first of all, is a very important point. I don't think it's just a, a reflection of today. It's actually, it's deeper. That's one thing. Second thing, 
the the geopolitics or the politics there is really complicated in one hand but on the other hand is very simple it's very complicated because you have as you said many players international players as well over there however it's very simple because it's very easy step forward we need to recognize how can we live in peace together and this is despite is as we were discussing before like it's the very normal that normal people want peace want to have a normal life it's kind of not allowed over there and that's actually one of the shocking things and now we call this situation in Gaza we call it war we call it genocide it's revealing it's revealing a lot of fakeness that we have seen and we have seen that this is actually a goal is to accept some human suffering and go beyond it and that's why i think the israeli society i think there are many people or some people in the israeli society who even bravely spoke up out even there during are, this there are, situation there is a number of israelis yes. who are working with palestinians yes. to speak together and i'm sure you've seen this in and, your work as well yes and i'll tell you even bef- beyond that during my work at least my professional career i worked with people like as my role of course in people even in the army or in the ministries and there are people who want to really cooperate and live normally and that's why this is the big question mark so if really the government there is representing the people if it's really democratic do you really represent everyone and the question is is your politics or policy is really the safeguard livelihood development of the israeli society or to leave to leave them basically live in fear forever as also palestinians to live in fear forever well that's a good point and it's something i wanted to come to because of course um israelis with without that voice here present might say that this all started because of hamas Can I add some? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to touch upon uh, something that Sami said about, and, and it somewhat is a partial response, why is the West not getting, you know, uh, intervening more, uh, more more actively in, in defense of those, I mean, sort of uh, massacres. And, and, you know, and there has been in the last 25 years a, 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 a dehumanization of the Arab world. Since September 11, the political narrative of many politicians Uh, many media outlets have been to dehumanize Arabs and calling them out as as people who could not live under you know democracy people who are um, terrorists and so on and I remember when when I lived in Tunisia and I lived before the revolution the political consensus the global consensus was to keep the Arabs under authoritarian regimes as they would because the narrative was you know the arabs could not govern themselves so we have been permeated with this we, we have been digesting mm-hmm. so much of anti-arab sentiment mm-hmm. for decades and this is why a lot of people cannot have the same empathy to the human stories well i don't think that's uh, universally true no 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 yeah but of course there's a lot of people who stand out but uh, one of the reasons why actually i i did take the initiative to write the book is that really because living in Tunisia I and, and living in in the during the Arab Spring and seeing those heroes that that were actually fighting for what we will call universal aspirations we're like humans and everyone else and then what we wanted to uh, recount through this book was it really the human aspects of those people who took the big risk of 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 protesting uh, and the regime but they were by the rising way. up against their own Yeah, dictators, you might say. But you know what is interesting, and, and that's what really triggered me at the beginning. First, we started, my wife and I, we started as a blog. Uh, we started with a blog because we were very upset with our own government. 
And we should say this is the book, if you're looking, it's called Fear No More by Francesca Russo, your wife, and of course you. Yes, Maria. thank you. And then so the reason why we, 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 we wrote it as we were so upset during those days in which the revolution was really boiling up by our own government and the way they were trying to dismiss the natural and human universal aspirations of the Tunisians while they were protesting. And so we started blogging undercover, of course. I was very exposed. I was the country economist for Tunisia at the African Development Bank. So we had to keep my uh, <laughs> keep it undercover. Um, I'm so, surprised you were allowed to do that. Yeah, well, no, I wasn't allowed. But, but I felt like many, I had my tipping point. I felt that I had to do something. And that's why this book is also very interesting today because we see a lot of people that are taking the risk for standing up for something much greater than themselves. You know, I'm sure Natalie can speak about what is happening here every Saturday, but it, all over the world, in Gaza, everywhere. I think what, what we wanted to do in this book is to really encourage people to take action on whatever people stand for, but really taking the risk. And then, and then we have a recount every day is a recount of a different person who tells the end journey and how their tipping point, how they went to break the wall of fear. I want to come back to your point and, and then I'll come to Natalie um, about you, you mentioned the the dehumanizing of, of of Arabs. I don't think that at all. Personally, I haven't seen it in my uh, circle of friends, contacts. That's not what I feel. And, and I've lived in the Arab world a little bit as well, uh, not in the same way as you and, and a different part. Um, I, I've never felt that. Where has that come from, that thought for you? Well, I, I felt it mostly from, you know, the, the Western media and, and Western politicians. Many of them, since September 11, they've been trying to push mm -hmm. for this narrative. Well, uh, there was a reason that, um, I mean, September 11 was a very specific of course, incident. Of course. But we see it today, right? Uh, as a, as a, as a, as a, you see, the, the Ray, if you want, there, there is an action and there, there's a reaction, right? Yeah. And there are proportion to the reaction. I think the US policies in particular during after, in the aftermath of, of September 11. But we might actually highlight this as an example of why there isn't enough international conversation right now, because I think if we want to call it the Western world, are frightened of getting involved in yet another situation. Mm -hmm. In They are already involved. They are totally involved. I mean, this... What we see today is is the result of the inaction of the international community. It's the direct result of the international community supporting Israel very clearly for dozens of years. I mean, we can take the example of the European Union. The European Union is the first commercial partner of Israel. First thing, the USA is the you know that USA is supporting military aid to Israel every year, three two to three billion. Uh, dollars of military aid every single year. There is a clear complicity and support of the so-called Western community. Our countries very clearly support uh, Israeli politically, militarily, financially, economically. Not yes. all European Union countries agree. Most, ah, okay, but in the facts, in the facts, in the money, and you know, uh, it is. This is the the truth, and uh, so for for us, this is very clear. The result of the inaction of the international community to really apply the international law how they should have uh, applied it. And if I uh, may uh, come back to what your question before, uh, what we see very clearly and why this what happens today is maybe miss understood in a few senses is that we live in a myth today. We, we think we live in a world of which is decolonized. When we go to school, we learn about colonial history, right? And we think it's in the past. 
Uh, we think uh, uh, in the 50s, 60s, colonial countries, you know, they were liberated and so on. But this is not true. We still live in a colonial world because look at Palestine. It's a totally colonial country. And there are a few other uh, examples in the world like Western Sahara and uh, Papua, uh, Western Papua. So just to say that we still live in a colonial world. And this is very important to use it as a framework and to read the world with these glasses in political glasses to read this um, and to understand this conflict as a colonial conflict. And uh, we say that the 7th of October, and as much as we condemn uh, what Hamas did on the 7th of October, and it was a totally atrocity, but it didn't happen in a country of peace. It did not happen in a country of peace. Gaza was never a free country, just as uh, Palestine has never been a free country. I recently spoke to a guy who comes to our demonstrations. You know, every Saturday we demonstrate and he came to, to spy on us. And then he told me, he came to provocate me and he told me, but there is no such thing as occupation. I'm like, I mean, so you didn't even respect international law because according to international law, there's a clear military occupation. There is an occupier and an occupied. And we have to keep this in mind. This is the most important thing to keep in mind if we speak about this conflict and or this war, which we have now. There is an occupier and occupied. The occupier has clear responsibilities under the international law, which is to um, care for the well-being of the occupied people which is, of course, not happening at all, which we see. So, I mean, this is very clear. And we keep this, We need to keep this framework in mind to, to really contextual, contextualize what's happening now. And I'm not justifying anything which has been done by Hamas, because I was, we were speaking before, every dead person, every dead child is too much. And I suffer as a mother. I suffer as much, you know, for any human being dying. But there is a political context and there is political responsibility and it's not the same on both sides, on Israeli, on Palestinian side and on the international community side. So we're in a situation now, yes, Sari, I want to kind of really come to the point of Gaza seems to be destroyed. What do we do next? Yes. Allow me just before the next because we need to understand something for the current situation in order to know how we go next. So, first of all, um, again, comes back how people in Gaza perceive things. I think it's important also to put a voice for the voiceless because that's how they see themselves. They've seen, so the people of Gaza see that they have been killed, destroyed, lost everything, lost their houses, their income, the rich and the poor, the refugee and the citizen. Every person over there is impacted. There is no house or a household that doesn't did not lose something, a life, a friend, a cousin, or a house or a property. That's first of all. Um, and second of all, and we even see that there were a lot of double standards. I'm not only talking about politicians that were accepting that, no, but even in the media coverage, even the respect of the dead people, you'll see that all victims are innocent victims. So I'm against any civilian, no, neither Israeli or Palestinian to be harmed or killed. So, But you'll see the media coverage when there is Israeli victims, poor victims, of course, they say killed. When they look to Palestinians in thousands, they say, died, did not have a heart attack to die. They were killed. They were bombed. So that's one I'm telling you how the Palestinians perceive it. So we are basically being killed and they looked at us, yeah, you evaporated by yourself. Second point uh, is all the coverage, even about the hostages. I hope all hostages are free. 
the Israeli ones. But what about the Palestinian hostages that just before 7th of October were 5,300 people and now they are reaching around 9,000? Some of them, they could have uh, some charges against security. This is questionable. But what about others, kids or women who didn't do anything? And that's also raised the point if the Israeli government is really about protecting their own people, protecting their livelihood or about politics of certain agendas. One last point in order to see how we go forward. Um, is uh, is something happened to me personally, a good friend of mine, Dr. Hammam al And as I said, I've never been impacted to that close degree uh, of such a situation before. I've seen a couple of wars, there have been five wars in Gaza itself just in the past 10 years. Dr. Hammam al is my friend since childhood. Uh, we were together in primary school, in uh, mid school, in high school, and then he left to do his studies in medicine. He was actually the first uh, transplant, kidney transplant doctor in Gaza. Um, Hammam, as I said, he was always the best in our class, always dedicated, didn't do anything else besides studying. That's why we called him nerd. <laughs> and he was a nerd, a good nerd. Uh, just dedicated all her life to his medical studies. Um, Hammam uh, was also taking care of my father. My father had kidney failure. Uh, he passed away last year. Uh, thank you. And this is life. Of course, it was difficult, but Hammam was taking care of my father. And you see the infrastructure of the uh, dialysis and even before this situation was shocking. I was really uh, tortured to a degree that my father is going through that. I couldn't bring him here because he knew at some point he might pass away and he didn't want to leave. Anyway, Hammam was taking care also of my father, visiting him, going, giving me all the medical uh, advices what to do. Hammam, one of the guys, one of the doctors who actually stayed in Shiva Hospital until the last minute. I didn't know anything about him since the war started. I just texted him in the, in the beginning, or you good, the family, as we text all our friends. And then I woke up on one day, it was the 27th, I forgot actually the day, now it's too many a situation, on the news that he was killed. I go up and I check. He made an interview and one channel called Democracy Now, radio interviewer, he was on the phone at least. It's an American channel. And the interviewer was asking him, but Hammam, why are you still in Gaza City? Why are you still serving in Shifa Hospital? Why didn't you move? Why don't you leave with your family south? And he said very simply, again, I'm recalling, I cannot quote because I don't remember the exact words, but what he said, Madam, we are also human beings. We deserve medical care. And he said, I did not study 14 years of my life to leave my patients die alone, so I save myself and life. And when you look to these things, that's one of the kids, one of my close friends, he was killed. He took uh, one day off or half day off from the work in the hospital. He went to a house close by where his uh, family-in-law, the house got killed, uh, has been bombed three days after that. Uh, he, his son, seven-year-old, uh, his father-in-law, his mother, who was one of the very famous gynecologists uh, in, in Gaza, all have been killed. Uh, so that was actually a very shocking experience we have never expected as i said to a degree you understand if somebody is a politician or somebody is involved into certain uh, actions or movements military or uh, political you might understand or accept but they are choose their life path but you look hammam was always all his life as i said study nerd a doctor he was the only guy who was the best in french school uh, french language sorry in school so it was really uh, heart melting i've lost many other friends uh, but one of them was alive <laughs> his name is Aboud. i call him he's in the south at the moment since the beginning and he told me sorry i've never seen i've never gone through such a thing in my life he never left gaza before and he told me like we reached a, a stage where 
the planes are 24 hours on top of our heads. When there is a bombing, we stop for a second. Everybody stop for a second. Are we alive? Are we hit? No, we're fine. Make some tea. So they go have a tea. So they are trying to look for, for to live. He was devastating for them. He's an entrepreneur. He built uh, an oil, a small oil factory uh, that he was developing from a family business and he, he owned it and now it has been destroyed. And he said, I put all my life, my energy, my saving, my thinking, my everything in that and it's lost. Where is the way forward, if I may say? Uh, but just before the way forward, there's a very important thing to all the audience to understand. As a Palestinian from Gaza, as even for the Israeli colleagues, everybody there, this ongoing situation for the past 75 years is not related to any religious perspective. Some people, minority people, could look at it from that. That's their call, that's perspective. But in reality, there is no religious conflict. Mm-hmm. We are all brothers. There is no difference. In my humble opinion, at least, uh, a lot of people from different backgrounds come together, whether our religious backgrounds, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, if you are an atheist, whatever your background, whatever your nationality, I think what's needed in this war before we go for step one or next step is to understand that this unites us all as a human being, regardless if you are more pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, regardless if you are you're liking this politician or that politician, regardless if you think those are crazy guys or those are crazy guys, what's unite us now that we need to wake up, that we are all human beings. And if we keep accepting that human lives are basically wasted in that way, it means the wars could come again and we will, we will all face some type of, of atrocity ourselves. The way forward is the following. I will put it as an engineer in steps. Very brief, I'm not going to discuss unless if you open it for discussion. First of all, there should be a ceasefire now. It cannot, it cannot wait longer. Second, the situation in Gaza, even if this, uh, the war stops now, even the ceasefire happens now, is catastrophic like no tomorrow. You, everybody will be shocked of how much damage there that will take, like, I mean, at least I think between 15 to 20 years just to rebuild. Uh, so I think step number two, there should be a structured aid, humanitarian aid and relief for Gaza, different than any time before. Third, there should be polit- politic, sorry, in parallel, split, in my humble opinion, split the politics from humanitarian action. Let the politician work together, we need to have a long-lasting peace on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, whether it's a two-state solution, a one-state solution, a ten-state solution. To be honest with you, at the moment, I care about people's life and we cannot just take any farther. So that's step one, stop the war. Step two, structure aid and humanitarian aid. And I'm actually, I'm working with a, on a proposal with some of my Gazan friends that we want to put together to international entities to see how this could be done to benefit the people of Gaza and not just, again, naming it uh, to under just big names. Mm-hmm. Third point, oh, sorry, with one which is in parallel, so you could say 2.A, 2.A, 2.B, is the political uh, um, uh, discussions, the negotiations. As I said, go sit down, let all the politicians gather them in one room, on one table, it's not something good to work on it. But first, you need to bring the communities. You need to to destroy the the walls that has been built in the minds and the brains of people on the two societies, the Palestinian and Israeli. But you have to understand something very difficult. It will be very difficult. Why? Yes, there are casualties and civilian harmed in Israel. But look at Gaza. And the question is, we could discuss on a cup of coffee how we can make a a good outcome, how we can change things. 
but there is a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of sadness. So we need to heal these wounds. And upon here, when I, what I'm trying to say as a premium step after ceasefire, I think the EU, particularly, which is a peace building project. It's a it's a project that built on peace. We get shocked by some of the gov some sorry apologies some EU governments with their remarks and uh, commitment into this war. Let's say um, how they see it. They are not only one-sided, they are against humanity, against anything they could stand for, even in their own countries. But let's put it away forward, come together to put a structure that could help uh, the people in Gaza to live again. That, for me, is priority number one. And in order to do that, this cannot be just a reflection or a reaction to a tough situation, a horrible situation there, because we have seen this before. If this ends up like every time before, a lot of supply, a lot of, yes, we help too, too yeah, if we are good, we are human, blah, blah, blah. and we come, we do some supplies, and we don't really try to solve the roots or really help the deep uh, situation there to be elevated, uh, I think it's better to, to just say nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much to discuss there. Thank you so much for your thoughts and laying it out very clearly. I've made notes. And uh, when you said about gathering the politicians in one room, I'm not quite sure how, because of the anger you also discussed and the, the wounds and the hurt there, that seems like an impossible situation. But you did talk about uh, moving through the communities. Natalie? Well, that's because of all this anger and, of course, very strong emotions. You need a neutral international um, how do you call it, uh, mediator. Yeah. It cannot be the USA. It cannot be, you know, because the USA today is uh, uh, giving the munition, the arms munition to Israel. Uh, it's the US American uh, munition which has been fired on the Palestinians in Gaza. So if they would stop in three days, the war would be over. So there is a clear complicity. It cannot be one side which has been supporting. So we need... Um, you know, um, as as far as possible, neutral platform of uh, mediators to help this. And the solution, I always say, cannot come from Israel-Palestine alone. We need international support. It's impossible. There is the also the um, on the Israeli side. The I always say the balance of power is so unequal between Israel and Palestine. It's such an unequal. You know, it's not a conflict where two sides are on the same level. It's not like a traditional war between two states. It's totally unequal. One occupier, the other occupied. So you cannot even we cannot wait from them to find peace between them. it's impossible the palestinians sorry but they are the weak part in this uh, in this um, conflict very clearly because they've been occupied um, so we need international strong uh, responsibility to put for us it's very clear we need sanctions on israel for us it's very clear this is a state which has been violating international law for dozens of years the uh, military occupation is supposed to be temporary you know uh, according to international law, it's supposed to be temporary, like a few years, you know, and then it should be over. But this has been like for 55 years, we have a military occupation. I mean, I would say that the sanctions and, and rules that are put in place, they're not always abided by. And we've seen that in the last few decades as well. The, there's various little uh, enclaves being developed uh, within Palestinian, what was Palestinian territory. So... Yeah, I'm yeah, but that, that's actually what I like to tie up to the fact that we need a new leadership, and and I think I like to echo the again the South African initiative and the fact that the global South. But where would you get new leadership from? Well, the global South. I mean, what we see today is the is a global South. You know, Africa, Latin America. Uh, you know, the Western Western countries have been speaking about the two state solution for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at a map, just do a Google search. Which countries recognize Palestine? 
And if you look at Western Europe, mm. the map is very, there's very few countries who did. There's the Vatican, there's Sweden, Iceland, and a few others. Ireland. Ireland. Um, and, and now everyone, I mean, there's a time to, to really do that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Pedro Sanchez recently, the prime minister of Spain, actually started having these discussions again and says, OK, well, if you want to speak about two days, two days solution, maybe it's time to start recognizing. If you look at the map. But we must also say yeah, that just, when just finish. If you look at the map, yeah, al I, almost I all African say, though, countries and Latin American countries have been recognizing the right to exist. And that's fundamental recognition gives you legitimacy mm -hmm. to sit at the table. But I also want to say that um, when you say certain countries support one or the other, that's not always the voice of the people. Fully agree. You, you see, there's a very big difference. And I think a lot of people living in some countries that apparently support one or the other, a person in the street might think, that's not my mm -hmm. voice. That's not what I but, believe. But Unfortunately, may I ask a question on this. Uh, this is actually one of the shocking also points for me. Uh, you understand that some countries worldwide are dictators, people are oppressed, etc. What shocks me that yes, the people in some countries, free uh, elected governments in free countries, free world countries, that people say something, and the government, despite they have been elected by people, are actually doing the policy which is totally against the will of people. Mm -hmm. So I think theoretically, or how do you call it, like uh, philosophically, I start thinking like, oh, is this really the free uh, concept of elections? Like, I elect you, yes, we do our votes count for true, but then later on politicians will do whatever they want regardless of their voters' uh, base. And uh, I'm so sorry, apologies. Just one very important point that people need to understand, which Emmanuel, you've mentioned, there is a difference between the lip services that you put for two-state solution or for peace services and really working to achieve that. Just to give you an understanding, and this is going out for all people with all different backgrounds. As I said, from the religious background, because this is always a religious question, whether you're Christian, Jewish or Muslim, whether you are a European, Arab, black, white, whatever you are, the history of that land that we call Palestine is thousands of years. And I have seen a lot of coexistence within these decades. You have, we had, the, so starting with the Canaanites, we had the Hebrews, the Romans, the, the Egyptians, the Pharaohs, the Greeks, the, like, I don't think there was a civilization, at least in the old universe, Europe, Asia, Africa, that did not really exist there. So I think Palestinians were made up of all of those. So the point is, in my humble opinion, regardless of how you frame it, two state, one state or ten states, what should be focused upon is equal rights for all is the dignity and freedom for for the Palestinians who are the native inhabitants of that yeah, land. But this will not happen. They will not fall from the sky, you know. If we want this, we need implementation. We need very strong and uh, proud politicians, you know. And sorry, I, I will come back to the uh, sanctions. Sanctions are a non-violent tool in the hands of the international community to impose international law. It's been used for other countries. Think of Russia, Iran, other countries. Why not use it in this case? I mean, we know why. There is a fear of being targeted as anti-Semitic. There is a lot of business to do with Israel. Palestinians are the side you cannot do any business with. So, you know, there are many reasons for this. But to, if we are very honest with ourselves and integral and coherent, we need sanctions, which is non-violent tool. And actually, many people today say the BDS call, the boycott, disinvestment and sanctions call, which is a non-violent call, 
has been, you know, it's it's been uh, not been used a lot in the world. And maybe this, what that did Hamas on the 7th of October, it's also because people are afraid of using uh, BDS boycott and sanctions because it's been targeted as anti-Semitic. Um, so maybe we should have been using these non-violent tools we have to put pressure on because it's, It's with us. It's with an end. You know, we always say sanctions until Israel respects international law. We will not boycott them uh, eternally. It's about until they respect international law, until they end the blockus and the occupation and stealing the land of Palestinians. And then, of course, it's like with South Africa, right? You know that South Africa apartheid regime uh, finished because of the um, BDS boycott and sanctions movement internationally. It put pressure on the apartheid regime so that uh, in the end we could, the country could be free of uh, apartheid regime. It's mm. a non-violent tool. It's very important to understand. Yes, absolutely. And I want to bring it back to really sum it up with MSF, uh, the Doctors Without Borders, because I want to really bring back the humanitarian element here. You know, we could speak for days and days and days, as people are, mm. about the politics of the situation. But uh, as you said, Sorry, we're humans and that's what doctors deal with. Doctors are trying to, and not just doctors, all of the medical staff, all of the organisers on the ground, there's, there's a whole host of people needed with MSF and uh, it really is putting the human first. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And and, and, and also uh, agree with what Sari said uh, when you said uh, there must be a place for first humanitarian answer mm-hmm. about what what we what we see mm-hmm. here, uh, and then beside on the political. So then, and we started the political. Uh, I mean, you started. You see, it's not that easy the political discussion, and that's why I didn't enter in that discussion because as humanitarian, we have to stay, I guess, a little bit. Um, just focused on on the human dignity. You put the human and the first. right exactly. Mm-hmm. You care about a human as a human, all equal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I think that really is the core of this conversation. I hope nobody listening thinks we are taking one side or another, because I, of course, you know, we were chatting earlier about certain countries taking one side or another. But in fact, if we could all just put the solidarity of humanity first, I think we'd be in a much better place altogether. Uh, and also, Sarah, you mentioned coexistence. Uh, finally, in the last couple of minutes, I want to bring it back to Emanuele, because of course, this has reflections of everything that you've written about in the book. I haven't finished yet, just due to time constraints on my part. It's, it's a wonderful book, and I highly encourage everybody to buy it. There is a certain place you can buy it, but there's even a local place, and we always like to support local bookshops wherever possible. Ernster have taken up. Yeah, Ernster, I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, they agreed to actually, um, even if time has passed, I mean, 13 years ago, but they they, they saw the, the value of, of, of for uh, those human stories that that we recounted in this book to be to be distributed at at the cloche d'or at um and Belle Etoile and also the English um, uh, bookstore in, in uh, downtown and of course on Amazon.com if you look at it fear no more But living through that time you said it's 13 years ago which is both a long and a short time yeah. um, we've been speaking about decades you, actually centuries of history when it comes to, to Palestine territories um, do you see any echoes in what's happening now? Absolutely I see a lot of activists out there that are risking I mean Sami was was talking about the activism of his own friend uh, that stood and lost his life for this. And those are the stories that we told in this book because there were stories of a lot of big and small heroes. But I think what I I think is important to underscore 
how what is happening on the ground the people who live the suffering people who live oppressions are also very much energized by those who are protesting on their behalf um, there's a one particular story that i will never forget about lina benmemi one of my favorite uh, person that i interviewed she was a blogger mm-hmm. um, she was very small she was very petite um, she was sick she had a like a, a like um, a, like an illness that would have indeed led to her death premature death a uh, few years ago at the, uh, only at the age of 37 okay so you read that section and then she what was she was always, she told me that she was blogging even if she was threatened she was beaten up by the police and things and and she was say for me blogging and connecting with the external world was my lifeline was my savior because and she said you know for me if if they will ever kill me the whole international community will be an uproar and i think what people are feeling under oppressions whether it is gaza or anyone else even the in the kibbutz of 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 israel the fact that we care about the situation the fact that we discuss the fact that we go on the streets the fact, the fact that there is even a trial at an international tribunal matters a lot for those people who are, so, uh, are oppressed so that's why we wanted to recommend you know we we wrote this book really as a legacy but also as encouragement of people to also break their wall of fear that's why the book no more fear and really stand out for what they believe and really go because sometimes you have the feeling of being helpless in this world right you are helpless about climate change you have sometimes you feel helpless about the war ukraine palestine everything but there is nothing more powerful and those stories those connections are so important than going and in the street and debate and discuss it because those that don't want peace they want these things to be under rubbles and also debates to be under rubble and that's why i'm so appreciative for to you lisa for 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 giving us this opportunity to to elevate this discussion on your prestigious uh, uh radio program because it is important we talk either we whatever side you take in this matter you need to be able to speak out and you need to be able and that's why by the way i'm very privileged that in luxembourg we have the freedom to speak and protest every saturday to, on on this matter unlike other neighboring countries mm-hmm. where you can actually risk to go to jail for really speaking up mm-hmm. which is shocking in a free countries mm-hmm. thank you all so much i know that we thank could you. speak for another two days or more two years about this and i think the the underlying message from us all for everybody who is suffering in this way is that we want peace we want all human life to have dignity and respect mm-hmm. thank you to all that msf does on the ground we wish all of your families well all of your friends well of course sari thank you for the work that you're you. both doing natalie and manuel i know your your effervescence never dies you have a continual push for good in the world uh, in in many different ways thank you all so much for listening for watching and of course we welcome this conversation this debate to to follow through in a positive way in a positive way thank you all very thank much you. Thank, thank you thank you very much thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.